and for the American Academy of Religion Conference. And I had the privilege of driving my two children, who are um, three and five, 12 hours to Lake Charles, Louisiana. And Louisiana is a great place to go, especially over Thanksgiving, because the food's amazing. But the bad thing is, is you cross the state line, and I cross the state line and gain about 10 pounds. So um, today we're talking about geology. Um, first of all, we have two more classes. Um, we're a little thin today because I guess because of the holidays, but um, next week Matthew Groves is going to be back to continue his conversation about natural selection. And the following week we'll have a kind of a panel where we'll be discussing four or five questions that, uh, that might be going through in the back of your minds. So we're talking about geology and kind of um, natural evidence for the age of the earth. Um, we'll be talking a little bit about the, the counter-arguments, and uh, uh, it should be an interesting discussion. We do have a, a chemist who has studied this in depth. He has a, a PhD, John Dawson. It's not geology, and my study is very narrow, low-energy nuclear spectroscopy, which yeah. has got nothing to do with the age of, except me. It was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> it does have to do with dating things, though, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. So these are the, the rock layers or the strata. Um, we do see order from these rock layers, and it can be, it can be noted that we have layer that's older, younger, 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 and you can kind of see the time period. And this is one of the stratigraphic uh, principles that we see through this, uh, this uh, method. Um, so superposition and then association, this is the principle that the fossils that are found in this layer were deposited when the rock layer was forming. Um, I had a friend that w took a bunch of students to uh, a museum, and she came out of the museum and she said, my mind are just blown by those dinosaurs. And the student said, yeah. Too bad they're not real. And kind of, you know, you just want to ask that person, well, how did they get there? How did the dinosaurs get there? Um, they may say, some people say, well, God put them there to test us. Um, last week, uh, two weeks ago actually, Brent talked about how God's not a deceiver. So I do think that this idea that God's putting evidence for an aged earth is kind of outside of his nature. Um, so... Maybe the devil put them there. You know, the devil was uh, de described in the text. Go ahead. Explain that she thought that because she'd been taught that. Before. She'd been thought that because she kind of was raised um, a lot like many of you were, that the, the earth was young and that, these, uh, that it was created in uh, 6,000 years. So I, the I dinosaurs couldn't be real. So the dinosaurs couldn't be real. Um, the other, the other idea is that the devil put them there. Well, I don't think that the devil has that sort of dominion over the, the natural world. Um, there is this idea that um, one critique is of paleontology is that the um, fossils are just kind of dated by their, uh, the, the structure and the complexity of the organism. Uh, that's just not true because... The, when we're dating these things, we're not just—it's not just a, a paleontologist, a bunch of paleontologists getting into a room and talking about where do we put these 
these, a certain fossil. It's actually a really interdisciplinary process that involves um, people like John. Um, and we use radiometric dating to do this. So let's take a look at radiometric dating. Radiometric dating uh, relies on different isotopes. Uh, an atom is com composed of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And the different isotopes occur in nature due to a discrepancy uh, or diversity in the number of, of protons present. Neutrons present, sorry. And they can... They, these things are going to go to a more stable state by several different mechanisms. We have beta, decay, um, positive and negative. Uh, alpha particles can be released, but that's beyond the scope of what we're trying to do here. But a pretty simple um, method of radiometric dating is carbon-14 dating. And we have a few assumptions. The first assumption is that the carbon cycle in a living organism has a constant ratio of carbon-14 to carbon-12, which seems to be a pretty solid assumption. Um, the sample is uncontaminated, uncontaminated after death with carbon-14. Um, we would have no reason to think that it would be contaminated with carbon-14 after death. Our instruments can accurately detect small amounts of decay, and the rate of decay is proportional to the number of atoms present at time t. So here we have two guys who kind of theorized this, and it kind of makes sense to us now, given what we know about exponential growth of bacteria. The uh, uh, one bacteria, one bacterium becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight. You would, you know, the modern brain can kind of wrap their mind around this, but this was kind of uh, revolutionary. So here we have our formula that they propose, and that's that the change of the number with respect to the change in time is proportional to the number present at, at n. I know that's boring, but... Um, so if we solve for n, we get this uh, formula, and we see that the variable here, t, um, is, in the ex is exponential, so the solution to this differential equation is exponential decay. So... We, have these, we can view these things as simple accumulation clocks. We have uh, potassium, which can also go to argon, and we'll actually talk about that here in a little bit. Um, over three different half-lives of potassium, we can see that um, seven calcium uh, atoms are accumulated. So over time, these things build, and we'll use that to date here, to, to show examples of how we date here in a minute. Uh, we have the assumption that there's no trace daughter isotopes when the system was formed and the system is closed. Neither parent nor daughter isotopes enter the system. Uh, and we can, we can detect these with mass spectrometry, which was mass, mass spectrometry or a Geiger counter, which was John's field of study. Um, here we have the study of tree rings, dendrochronology. Um, we actually can date um, the tree ring from the outer surface, which is the, old, the, the younger area, the older area, and to the inner is the younger. And we can use these things, and we can really hone in on and get an idea of whether or not our process is accurate. Um, this is uh, pretty fun. I like doing uh, word problems. Uh, I go back home, and I run into my eighth grade algebra teacher, and he says, 
Jason was the only person who asked for more word problems. And that gives me a lot of street cred with my wife or whoever else I'm hanging out with. So we're, uh, get out your phones. Uh, we have, we have uh, scientific functions on our iPhones, so you don't even need like a TI-83 anymore. Um, T, and so we, we derived this formula from where we started earlier. I'll save you from the, the kind of the more complicated upper-level math, but we have this sample of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, this is the supposed cloth that wrapped Jesus' body. Um, and if you're on your iPhone, if you, if you turn it sideways, it actually will show you the, the scientific functions. And we know the, we know the half-life is 5,730 uh, years for carbon-14. So we're going we're gonna to simplify this. It's 42.5 grams. And that, I don't know why it's doing this. It's not showing the decimal point, but... 42.5, and we have 3 grams, so we want to simplify that. That's 14.17. So, if we plug this in, N is 15.3. That's that magic number. Everybody has this at death. You die, you have 15.3 decays per minute, per gram of, of carbon. Uh, and per, per gram of actual tissue, I guess you would say. Um, so we're going to take 14.17. Is anybody doing it? Yeah, we got one guy here. Take 14.17 divided by the original amount, 15.3. And the reason why we're able to use the rate of decay is because it's proportional back to the Rutherford and Saudi. And hit LN, that's the natural log. Multiply that by the half-life, 5,730, and divide that by lambda, that's the, that's a, that's the constant, 0.693. What's it give you? Negative 634.39, is that There you go. Uh, there about. I, I don't know what I did. Probably a decimal point. So, the Shroud of Turin is uh, a Catholic hoax. <laughs> okay. Uh, but we don't date rocks using the... the carbon dating because uh, if you think about this short half-life, I know 5,730 sounds like a long time, but when we're talking about how old we actually think the Earth is, after about seven or eight half-lives, we really get to uh, less than accurate results. So we really want to use different isotopes that have a lot longer um, half-lives. So we use the isochron method and to, to not to bore you too much with all the math, we essentially take different samples and we create these matrices and then we plot the points along the line and we can see these linear relationships. And we use these, these plots, the slope and the intercept, to figure out how, exactly how old uh, a, a rock is. Um, so here we have a Middle Tennessee uh, deposit of limestone. And the interesting thing about this is it actually tells us that our, our methods are, in fact, accurate because in the middle of these limestone, what do we have? We have volcanic ash. And in the Ordovician period, this is what uh, North America is supposed, supposedly looked like. Um, it was covered by a shallow inland sea, and here we have volcanic activity. Um, so there were, if you, if you look across this area, there, there's this deposit of, of uh, volcanic ash. So 
The nice thing about volcanic ash is that uh, potassium-40 goes to argon-40. What do we know about argon? It's an inert gas. And so when, the, when igneous rocks are formed out of molten lava or volcanic ash forms, gas, gaseous argon is given off. So we, ha we have the ability to see that it's not... It, there is zero of the parent isotope in the initial formation. But then it starts to accumulate. It's that clock. So we can actually, we don't have to uh, theorize whether or not there was any of the parent there, any, any of the daughter isotope there. Can you explain that for people who aren't scientists? Um, so, <laughs> so, Potassium, this is, this is gas, argon's gas, and one of the problems with our, our method is, is there any of this deposited at the beginning? And what we can say is that there is absolutely none of that because it's given off as gas. It's a pure sample, and then it starts to accumulate at, at, at you know, day one. You see, so there's none of this when... The, Help state it, in other words. That, that makes our calculation. We account for that in the methods to date the limestone, but the volcanic ash is a lot more simple, straightforward. One of the critiques of, of, of these processes is the fact that these are all, you're just postulating these things, and you don't know that, um, you don't know these, these daughter, these parent-daughter amounts at, at, at the, at the initial point in time. But given that this is gas, we can say with certainty that there's no argon because it would have been released. Okay. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of technical and dorky, but... Um, so we can use this, the date, which is much simpler to date this volcanic ash, and we get the same kind of dates as we get for the limestone below and above. You want to add anything to that? So here we have these bentonite deposits, and these are... These are across our region. You're saying the bentonite is the volcanic ash? The vo bentonite's the volcanic ash, yes. So the critiques are it's not accurate. Um, we can't know that decay, that the rates of decay is constant. Um, some people claim that the rate of decay was a lot faster during creation week or during the flood. Um, this would have this sort of decay would have had to have been so fast to make these, these numbers work that the actual mantle, the crust of the earth, would have melted because of the amount of energy that would have been given off if this sort of, um, if this sort of catastrophic event that the, that the flood geologists and the young earth creationists are proposing. Now, people study this and they make sense of it in other ways, but I guess what I would ask is what is, what is more plausible for... Um, for us to kind of jump through these hoops and say that the decay rates change and that that this or that happened, or um, or that you know the evidence actually all kind of just lines up. Um, the other you asked the question and I was going to get to it, but that these are closed systems that um, that there is no um, contamination and that we can the the critique would be that we don't know the initial values. Um, so that's enough about radiometric dating. Plus MA on your chart? Plus minus 2 MA. Oh, that's, they're accounting for error. 
No, so, mil oh, million years. Million years. Million years. Yeah. Um, so, this is, a, this is actually a graph from uh, the Creation Museum. Has anybody been to the Creation Museum? No one in this room. Oh, Lauren has. My wife has. Um, so, this is, this is the world that, that Noah would have lived in. It's, supposedly, he lived on the supercontinent Rodinia, and then the flood came, and um, there were lots of... The, this is the hypothesis that they put forth, the explanation. The floods rose, and that Rodinia broke apart, and the continents collided, and they formed Pangaea. And, and the... the uh, the flood geologists that we're talking about and the rest of science don't necessarily disagree with this. But this chart's interesting, this uh, visual. And then when the water started to recede, Pangaea broke apart, and now we have the continents that we have today. So how, how fast would the plate tectonic movements have to be? Um, they would have to move tens of feet per second for these uh, continents to be where they are today. That's very fast. Um, we know, based on uh, really sensitive global positioning system, GPSs, that uh, we're moving about 1.6 centimeters per year. This is a cool um, image of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. This is volcanic activity that's under the sea, and these, this is causing the tectonic shift, which is causing us to move at 1.6 centimeters per year. And this is another visual. You know, GIFs don't really, is it GIF or GIF? Uh, don't really work on PowerPoint. For some reason, they won't, it won't go on a loop. But you can kind of see what we're talking about. Here we see the uh, edge of the continental shelf, and also known as the drop-off if you're in the Finding Nemo. Um, but if we, if we date the, the seafloor age here, that's the old, oldest point in the seafloor, and this is the youngest point in the seafloor. And it's interesting because if you, we have all these cores, if you look at, and I, unfortunately I don't have an image of this, I'll go ahead and switch to this, but they have these, an image of the cores of the seafloor where, where they've dated and they've actually mapped onto that same floor um, the, the magnetic properties of the seafloor and they're like, uh, it's like a topographical map. And the topographical map actually follows parallel with the, the um, Mid-Atlantic Ridge. It's pretty interesting. But if we take the age at the continental shelf over here, and we do a radiometric analysis, we get um, 1.8 million years. Um, I'm sorry, 180 million. How many zeros is that? Help me out. 180. 180 million. Okay, and if we take the distance and we divide it, we get 1.6 centimeters per year. And what did the GPS show us? It was like 1.6. I find that to be absolutely fascinating. Um, a few other um, indicators of a, an aged earth uh, are glaciers. We can make the assumption that based on our understanding of the theory of relativity that the, the seasonal patterns of the earth have been kind of consistent. Summer, fall, 
winter every year for all this time. And every year we have ice deposition. And they've taken cores of the earth, of the glaciers, and they've, they've dated uh, these cores. They can see over 100 layers of, of, of deposition. So in the same manner, we have lake varves. Um, these are really pronounced in the, in the northern lakes because they have longer, uh, longer winters. And so these, these darker areas are the deposition in the winter and then and in the summer. In the southern lakes, it's, it's, really, it's a lot more um, uniformly colored, but there are ways to, to also do warm water lakes. Uh, this is a lake in Japan, Sujitsu, and it has a really high um, diatom content. And so when these things fall to the bottom of the seafloor in the spring, um, it produces a layer of silica, and they, that's how they actually determine um, the, the cycle in these warm water lakes. And they've done this with a 73-meter 70, core, which led to a, an age of 100. Now, this is not dating the Earth. This is just indicator that there's not six to 10,000 years like some may uh, propose. Um, last, last week, we talked about Darwin. Um, here we have a few players in geology. William Smith, he kind of came up with this initial idea of the strata, kind of organized, and he mapped this out. And he actually noticed that, he actually noticed that they were, they were at a, I'm trying to think here. They were at an angle like this, so you can kind of visualize the continental, uh, continental shift. And then there was a French guy named, uh, do we have any French-speaking people? I'm going to butcher this, I'm sure. Brognard, I think, is how you say it. And he took that back, and he actually mapped the strata of mainland Europe. And he worked, it was interesting, because he worked with a, with a paleontologist really closely, and they, um, they, uh, they did a lot of good work. And then Adam Sedgwick was actually um, an Anglican minister, and he was also a professor of geology at Cambridge. So why talk about these guys? Because Darwin was processing their information when he, when he published his work uh, on the origin of species in 1859. These views weren't really widely contested until um, well into the 20th century. Um, George McCready Price was a Canadian creationist who was also an Adventist. And he started publishing on this topic in 1906, kind of refuting... Darwin refuting the geologists, and he offered a thousand dollars to anyone who will, in the face of facts here presented, show me how to prove that one kind of fossil is older than the other. End quote. So um, things get, got really heated along those lines. And what also happened around 1925 in East Tennessee? Scopes monkey trials. Yeah. So things are heating up, and and the two sides are getting really contentious about this stuff. But going back to this, these three guys were all Christians. Adam Sedgwick was a minister. This idea that faith and science weren't compatible was, was not an issue for them. They, uh, Sedgwick was, was a preeminent geologist of his day. Okay, so what about our tradition? Alexander, Alexander Campbell, one of the founding figures of the Restoration Movement, which gave birth to the Churches of Christ, was a product of the Age of Enlightenment. 
So he believed that the reader had to approach the text as if it contained coded scientific and rationalistic forethought. He thought that this was a natural, the nature of biblical inspiration. But he did not subscribe to young, young Earth creationism. Instead, instead, Campbell held to this kind of conglomerate of the gap theory and the day-age theory. The gap theory says that there was a period of time that existed between the, the creation of the universe and the earth and the, the time when creation week began. And this can be seen kind of the way they parsed this out was Genesis 1, in the beginning God created, and then the earth was formless and void. So that's, this is the period that they're talking about here. And the day-age theory, which says that each day is a, a period of time that's not literally 24 hours. And he's held to this at least the first three, specifically at least the first three days weren't 24 hours, but maybe the second three were. Thus, and I'm borrowing from uh, Steve, Steve Gardner's Authentic Theology blog here. Um, Alexander Campbell said that Genesis 1 and 2 indicated that it, there were millions of years between God's creation of earth and the six-day creation in Genesis. At least the first three days were not 24-hour days. The Genesis days could be any length, thousands of years or more. And to say that the days of Genesis 1 are of equal length is preposterous. Okay, that's what he said. But in 1859, Campbell said in a sermon that we must take the biblical accounts against skepticism of geology. He considered using the geological strata to compute the age of the earth fallacious in light of the Genesis statement that the earth was without form and that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. Okay, so what happened in 1859 that we just mentioned? Darwin published The Origin of the Species. And so it seems like, like it's almost like Campbell had a stance on this and he's kind of walking it back because of the natural selection issue. Um, so he's highly skeptical of geolo geolo geologists' use of the earth strata to calculate the age of the earth on the basis of how we understood the creation. So he would have parsed out the idea that the earth was formless and void. Well, what's the deal with the strata? They're ordered. How did they get ordered? Well, it started becoming ordered at some point during the creation week. Well, I have a problem with that because of what we talked about, the God being a deceiver. I don't think it's within his nature to, to be deceptive. Okay. Um, David Lipscomb held to somewhat of a more hospitable view of scientific discovery. He said, and the Gospel Advocate, in an article titled Evolution in the Bible. The Bible the Bible is a revelation from God to man, he explained. So God adapts its teaching to the comprehension of men, but the great truths in it are of God and are as sure and steadfast as God himself. But we often, by looking at these revelations from an improper standpoint, misunderstand them and by the investigations of science may be called upon to revise our conclusions as to what they do teach. I'm interested to in hearing y'all's thoughts about all this. I don't know uh, much about Lipscomb or Lipscomb or 
Campbell, but I do know about my freshman bi uh, biology teacher. Yeah. Russell Artist. He was the only PhD at the time that Lipscomb could hire. I mean, it was rare and they didn't want to come to the school like Lipscomb. He was a total nut. Yeah. And this was his um, idea to teach freshmen. It, nothing really came comes from a discussion that he had um, other than this presenting this particular idea creationism is, I don't know, anyway, it was kind of contrary to what science any scientist would have yeah so I think I think a lot of people find meaning and the, it needs to be this way for them to have faith I just mm -hmm. I actually need uh, the science to make make sense for me to believe that for me to have faith. Anybody else? But they conflict, right? Hmm? They don't. They don't I, I don't think. I don't think there's any conflict uh, with this with this sort of information. I, I think. I think you could you could find conflict in in other in other um, I guess science uh, related modern topics but when we're just talking about the the age of the earth I don't I don't think that they're in conflict because I don't believe that the creation accounts in the bible are answering the same thing that science is answering I think they're dealing with different different um themes okay Rodney yeah I agree so Jason I would say Lipscomb here raises a good point that <laughs> Uh, you know, God's ways are higher than ours, and so we cannot always claim to understand. So we have to approach it with the understanding that we may not clearly understand. A another layer to this is what you're describing, that Scripture uh, works in ways that we don't always understand yeah. or, or sometimes forget. So we know there are different genres of Scripture. You know, there's history, and there's uh, poetry, and um, there's myth. Um, and, but sometimes we not only conflate those store, those uh, genres of scripture, we don't even fully know how those uh, genres would have resonated with people of the ancient Near East. Yeah. So we can do our best to approach it in a way to say, okay, how would the people, the audience that this was intended for, how would this, how would they have understood it? But it's it's almost impossible to fully understand how they would have grasped it, you know, four six thousand years ago. Yeah, and so going back to, um, oh, we had the pleasure of hearing from Terry Briley. Um, I'm sure most of y'all were here. But he kind of painted the picture of what these uh, creation myths uh, meant to the, to the uh, ancient Near East. Um, and they had this view, at least in their narratives, that the earth was flat, it was a disk, and there was a, there was a, uh, a dome over the earth, and this is how the, the stars traveled. There's debate whether or not they actually thought this, but this is, this is how their, their myths um, accounted for the creation of the earth. Um, the major surrounding cultures, uh, Egypt, Babylon, and Cana, had their own polytheistic creation myths. Um, and the Genesis 1 account holds to this general kind of, of view of creation. If we were to read Genesis 1 literally, we would come away with this view that it's flat and that the earth was covered by a solid dome. But 
we don't, and therefore we can say that, you know, there really isn't any scientific forethought in the creation accounts. Um, if we were to just look at the themes of the creation accounts and juxtapose those against the other ancient Near East creation accounts, we would see the the what the the writer of Genesis was trying to get at in in portraying the the message the way he did. That is that God speaks the world into existence and he creates the world out of nothing. And he's not God is not part of the material world. He is beyond it rather than um, having to hire slave, slaves to, to do his bidding and to do his manual labor. God is above all things and through all things are created through him. And that he creates symmetry out of order and chaos, chaos and disorder and that we are created in his image and we are his image bearers and that we are to be in relation with him. Um, so, any other thoughts on that? Go ahead, John. Yeah, um, Genesis 1, 29 and 30 are two very interesting. Hit me with verses. it. Uh, God is speaking to, and this is a whole other topic, but God is speaking to the... You should have asked this when Terry Briley was here, man. To the beings that he created his image, but yet he created man and female. That's another whole topic, yeah. but... Anyway, uh, then God said, Here throughout the whole earth I am giving you as food every seed-bearing plant and every tree with seed-bearing fruit. Okay. And to every wild animal, bird in the air, and creature crawling on the earth in which there is a living soul, I am giving as food every kind of green plant, and that is how it was. Now this is from the complete Jewish Bible, which is direct translation from the Hebrew. That leaves two conclusions, because we know that there are animals today that do not eat plants, they eat meat. Either, number one, there was a recreation, that God recreated everything, or number two, perhaps they evolved into this condition today. What other, uh, what other way can they get from there to here if ever, everything started out eating plants? And now they have, that they cannot live on plants alone. I don't necessarily know if, we, if, if the Bible teaches, I don't necessarily know if the Bible, I don't, I, I don't necessarily know, know if all animals ate plants. Well, that's what it says, if you accept it literally. Yeah. Um, do, do you want to add to that? The other thing it says, the other thing it says there is that the seed-bearing plants were created. Yeah, they were created before the animals. Yeah, created before the animals, yeah. but we also know, based on the geolo geological record, that the seed-bearing plants didn't come until, right. until, you know, well. But that doesn't phase the, the person who is a strict creationist. Well, yeah. so, but if you're going to read this theologically instead of literally, and that the strict creationist sense that you're describing, um, there's indication that, you know, when we think about reading Genesis and then also reading it alongside Revelation, for example, and the imagery we have of the lion and the lamb uh, laying down together, there's this sense in which God's intention for creation is to expel death and to expel um, enmity between animals and between humans and animals. Between So there's a, I think what we know is um, the kind of existence that God, the plan that God has for us includes a world wherein there is no, the animals don't actually have to hunt, okay? So it's hard to say what was it like 
But what, if we think about this theologically, we're offered an image of something more peaceable. So there's this sense in which um, what the imagery there that we're, we're offered is one wherein the animals, the lion doesn't have to eat the lamb, right? Um, that God is going to bring this reality about somehow. This is what we're promised in, in the new heavens and new earth. So if that makes sense. So that's the, that's the theological rendering of that. Go ahead, Micah. I think it, uh, you alluded to it, and Josh talked about it this morning. Um, it really helps uh, to read, to understand what these texts were responding to, like what they are pushing back on. And so the other stories, the Babylonian creation story, that the, the you know all these other stories that were in circulation that the Jews were intimately familiar with, their story is such a contrast. And when you read those it brings all of these details out of that we maybe don't even see. So like one of the things in the Babylonian creation story is that animals are created as an arms race between the gods. They are intrinsically intended to be weapons. You know, all these fierce beasts, and there, there's no real place for um, animals that are just, you know, an expression of beauty and all that kind of stuff. And, and the Genesis account goes the opposite way. God is God needs no weapons. There's no violence involved here. Animals are created because God wants to see flourishing life. And the the idea that then when we bring in carnivores, it's understood as an adaptation to the necessity of the world. It's not what God was setting out to do. God wasn't intrinsically setting out to create a violent world. So those things really come to life when we see that contrast with the other stories of the time. I think it would I think it's helpful for us to to kind of uh, drill into that mm-hmm. to understand the culture that they were responding to. I think that the in the world of science and faith that geology gets underplayed quite a bit to the, to our detriment. We we kind of, we tend to zoom into origin of species and 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 things and I think that Geology, the, the the study of geology was what got people started to think that we may be talking about orders of magnitude older universe uh, than yeah. and, and that allowed a framework for other scientific thought to come in. But there, there's something constant about geology. If you've ever been in an earthquake, there's something very disconcerting about the entire earth moving under your feet because we like to think that it's constant and it's not moving. Um, and there's something that is very comforting about the concept of a God and a, and a scripture that is constant and not moving. And as David Lipscomb said, adapts to, uh, adapts to uh, uh, revelations, further revelations of mankind. And, uh, and when you know, we're, we're getting to the point where we're kind of comfortable with the fact that maybe continents aren't constant. You know, they come and they go. We know that animals come and they go and they live and they die, but the earth under our feet uh, is not constant either, even though we tend to, we like to be grounded and we like to build our house on the solid rock and, uh, and, and everything. But that's not constant either. And I think that's a healthy thing for us to think about theologically too, is that the, the very things that we say are going to last forever Science is telling us they're not going to last forever either, but it's these, as Lipscomb said, the great truths that are going to stick around forever. Very nice. Anybody else? 
All right, next week we have Matthew Rose back. It's going to be good. So, thank you all. Thanks, that was good. Yeah. I was... Uh,